You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Well, we recently had our elections in this country. And one of the most anticipated moments in any American election is a debate. And that's not because debates are usually significant in determining who's going to win the election. Actually, they're not. But we love debates because of their theater. We've got the candidates on stage arguing back and forth, sometimes insulting each other. Americans tend to love that kind of thing. We love debates. And last week in Matthew's Gospel, we came to the beginning of a very dramatic debate, which, unlike our political debates, will prove to be very significant, as the Lord Jesus takes on the highest-ranking religious elites of Israel. Now, this debate has been a long time coming. Uh, Jesus, back in chapter 5 of this book, started calling out the religious elites of, of Israel from the very start of his public ministry. And for their part, since chapter 9, the elites have been persecuting Jesus. And ever since, Jesus has had many run-ins with various Jewish religious leaders, be they local leaders or delegations sent from Jerusalem to track him down and defeat him and discredit him in debate. And Jesus has taken down every challenger that he has faced, to the point that now all that is left are the highest-ranking elites within Judaism, the Sanhedrin, its highest council, consisting of the chief priests and several representatives of various factions within the Judaism of that day. And last week we saw that representatives from the Sanhedrin challenged Jesus in the temple. And their first move was they tried to trap Jesus in a word game which Jesus turned back on them and exposed them as insincere hypocrites who feared man rather than God. But that's not the end of the matter because Jesus then immediately fires off three searing parables uh, which are going to further reveal these guys' evil character. And these parables don't just reveal the character of the religious leaders of Israel. They also prophesy catastrophic consequences that are going to come from their opposition to his messiahship. Now, last week we looked at the first of these parables. Today we're going to look at parables two and three. And as we do so, we're going to see that Jesus warns these religious leaders about where their hatred of him is going to lead. And tragically for them and for those who followed them, they didn't listen to Jesus. And I pray today that we will as we consider three important truths. First, we must not oppose the Son. Second, we must heed the Lord's call to repentantly receive His grace. And third, we must not think too highly of ourselves. Let's start with our first point, which is simply, we must not oppose the Son. Again, Jesus has just told one parable to the Sanhedrin, and it went like this. There's a guy with two sons, and the father speaks to the sons and says, Go work in my vineyard. The first says no, 
and then changes his mind and goes to work. The second says, yes, Lord, to his father, but doesn't go. And Jesus says, which of these two sons did the father's will? And the answer is so obvious that even the spiritually blind members of the Sanhedrin understand. They say, well, the one who said no and then changed his mind and went to work, he did his father's will. But Jesus' application of this parable is devastating because this is what he says. God's will for Israel had been for them to listen to the ministry of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist called on Israelites to repent, to turn away from their sins, and to a new relationship with God. And many Israelites listened to John, including many who were considered the worst sinners within Israel. John's ministry led them to repent. They had a change of mind, which became a change of life. They turned away from their old lives of sin into a new life of faith and obedience. They were like that first son who changed his mind and did the Father's will. But, Jesus says to the religious elites, you guys are like the second son. You pay lip service to God. You say, yes, Lord, but you don't do his will. Because they would not believe John the Baptist. They would not repent of their sins. So Jesus said to them, the repentant prostitutes and tax collectors have a place in God's kingdom, but you religious leaders do not. It's a devastating argument. And now Jesus continues with an even more devastating parable. Look at verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. Now, just like in the first parable, there's a vineyard. And this time, Jesus describes the vineyard using language that comes from Isaiah 5, where God portrays his relationship with Israel as that of a farmer who plants a vineyard. Now, that tells us that the landowner in this second parable represents God. And the vineyard basically represents Israel. To be more precise, Jesus will say in just a few verses, it, it represents God's kingdom, God's rule over his people, which up until the coming of Christ had been exercised through the nation of Israel. Okay? All right, so what happens between this landowner and his vineyard? Verse 33. The landowner leased the vineyard to tenants and went into another country. Now, this is a parable. It's not an allegory. In an allegory, we would expect that every detail here has theological importance. That's not the case in a parable. Only some of the elements have theological significance. So when we read that this owner went into another country, we should not ask, what is this telling us about God? Is Jesus saying that God has gone away? No. This is a detail without theological significance. It's a detail Jesus has included just to move the story along. Because he wants to do something in the story, he wants to introduce some new characters. And who are these characters? Well, they are the tenants who are going to steward the vineyard in the owner's absence. Now, based on the associations we've already made, these tenants represent those who have leadership over God's people. These tenants are the religious leaders of Israel. And what happens? Verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, the owner sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Now, the owner may be away, but he still owns the land. He's still entitled to the produce. And so at the appropriate time, he sends his servants to collect. 
But what happens? Verse 35. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. The tenants are terribly wicked, and they murder the master's servants. What in the world is this talking about? Well, in chapter 23, Jesus talks about Israel's history with God's prophets. And there Jesus calls the religious elites of his day the sons of those who murdered the prophets. And he calls Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And that's what Jesus is describing here. That in the Old Testament, God sent his servants, the prophets, to Israel and to their leaders again and again, calling on them to repent and to live in obedience to God's Old Testament law. And usually those prophets were rejected. Often they were persecuted. And sometimes they were killed. It's a terrible response to those speaking God's truth. And what it reveals is a heart that hates the God who is speaking through those prophets, right? But after all of this evil, what does God do about it? Does he immediately overthrow all of Israel's leaders? Does he end Israel? No, look at verse 36. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. God is so gracious, he calls out to his people again through more prophets. Repent! Did they? No, their leaders hardened their hearts still further. Verse 36 says, and they did the same to them. More persecuted and martyred prophets. How will God respond? Well, verse 37 says, finally he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Now, who is this son? Well, twice in Matthew's gospel, the Father has spoken audibly from heaven, declaring Jesus to be his beloved Son. The Son must be Jesus. And now the Father sends Jesus to the leaders of Israel. Now again, this is a parable, not an allegory. Not every detail here reveals something of direct significance about God in a one-to-one way. So when we read the landowner saying, maybe they will respect my Son... We should not understand this to mean that God didn't know what would happen to Jesus. Of course he did. In Acts chapter 2, we're told that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus' death was always God's plan to bring about salvation for his people. No, the landowner's statement here is simply a detail that Jesus has invented to move the story along to his conclusion. So the landowner sends his son to the vineyard. And what happens? Verse 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They figure if they kill the son, the landowner may just abandon this hard-fought property that he can't get his fruit from, and they'll wind up taking the property. Verse 39. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Friends, Jesus knows where his story is headed. Four times in this book, he has prophesied what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. Matthew 16, 21 says, Jesus showed his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And here we see, The religious leaders are going to take Jesus outside Jerusalem, just like those tenants took the son outside the vineyard, and they're going to kill him. 
It's a monstrous demonstration of the evil hearts of these religious leaders from the first century. And in fact, it is a demonstration of the evil of all human heart. Yes, Jesus died as a part of God's plan. But Acts 2.23 says, in addition to Jesus being delivered up according to the plan of God, Peter also says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Jesus' death was an act of unspeakable evil. And that's what Jesus describes here. Wicked people murdering him. Because they, like all other elites in our world's history, are accurately described in Psalm 2 as having set themselves against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Friends, people want freedom from God to indulge in evil, including many religious elites who pretend to represent God. So they killed Jesus. But look at what Jesus does. Look how he ends this. He turns now to the Sanhedrin, to these wicked guys he's just prophesied about, and he asks them to render their judgment on this scenario that he's just presented. Verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And again, even these spiritually blind fools can see what answer is appropriate. Verse 41. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Sanhedrin's so blind, they don't even realize they're pronouncing condemnation on themselves. Because like those tenants, they won't give the master the fruit he's entitled to. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus has already condemned them symbolically for being fruitless when he cursed the fig tree. And now they agree that those who don't produce fruit for the master should be turned out of their office. And more than that, they agree that those who kill the master's son should die a miserable death. And indeed, that's what's going to happen. Now, later in our passage, Jesus shows how these things begin to come to pass. Look at verse 43 of this chapter. Jesus says to them, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Indeed, the fruitless Sanhedrin is judged. God's kingdom isn't going to remain something within the confines of Judaism, ostensibly governed by the Jewish religious leaders anymore. Now, the people of God are going to become something that's more than one ethnic group. They're going to consist of a new entity, the church, made up of people from every tribe and nation and language and people. More than that, as these guys say, God will do justice on the murderers. Because 40 years later, the Romans would come to Jerusalem and massacre the city and destroy the temple and torture and kill its religious leaders. There will be miserable deaths for those who kill the sun. And now Jesus connects the dots for the Sanhedrin. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, which has a lot of connections to our chapter. You might remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem, and the people shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118, verse 25. And now Jesus quotes from a line just three verses earlier in the same psalm. As we find a prophecy about God exalting a stone that human builders had rejected. 
and putting that stone in the most important position in a building. It's like we've seen Jesus say in, in many recent weeks, the first will be the last and the last will be first. In Jesus' day, man, the religious leaders looked powerful, didn't they? And man, they sure tried to grind Jesus into the dirt and make him look like he's last. But friends, God's vote is final. And God cast his vote in the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, the religious leaders rejected and killed Jesus. But the Father was pleased with Jesus and raised him from the dead, vindicating Jesus, exalting Jesus, giving Jesus all power over heaven and earth, according to the final verses of this book. Friends, Jesus is this stone whom men reject, but whom God exalts. And not only does the Father exalt Jesus, but the Father builds around Jesus. This is the idea we find in 1 Peter 2. You know, here we've seen the temple cleansed in Jerusalem and all this corruption in the religious institutions of Judaism in the first century. Here's God's plan, not another temple building in Jerusalem. 1 Peter 2.5, this is what God wants to do. You also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The temple's fading away in Jerusalem because it's not needed anymore. Because God's building a new temple, not a building, not a house made up of brick and mortar, but of living stones. It is the community of faith He's building. It is the universal church. Believers are his priests, offering spiritual sacrifices. And all that we do is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He is the most important piece. He is the cornerstone of God's great construction project. But this prophecy about the foundation stone is not only a picture of Jesus' exaltation and God's great building project, it's also a fearsome warning. Look at verse 44. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The stone that men reject becomes God's means of judging those who rejected him. Jesus will stumble those who oppose him and cause them to fall upon him and be dashed to pieces. Or he can fall from on high and crush those who oppose him. And this is a serious warning to the Sanhedrin. Jesus knows their hearts better than they do. He knows where their evil is going to lead. And yet he tells them in no uncertain terms that to do what they want to do is going to lead to catastrophe for them. And in this, friends, we see Jesus' love. Because he warns even his enemies, turn, turn, why will you die? Because it's death to oppose Jesus. They need to repent. But will they listen? Look at verse 45. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Once they see Jesus is talking about them, they don't want to repent. They want to get him, but they don't do it yet. Because Jesus has already shown in this chapter they fear men, not God. So they don't think the time's right yet. Jesus still seems to be too popular in Jerusalem. Now, what should we take from this first point? Friends, there is no neutrality with respect to Jesus. Jesus said back in chapter 12, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In the end, there's only two choices. 
And this book has shown us the first choice is we can subject ourselves to Jesus. And, and here's what that means. Number one, we need to have a right understanding of ourselves. Here is God's standard according to Jesus in Matthew 5, 48. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Not just in our outward deeds. But Jesus says in chapter 5, if we even entertain evil thoughts of anger or lust, we deserve what he calls the hell of fire. That's bad news. But there's a great solution. The solution John the Baptist preached in chapter 3. The solution Jesus preached in chapter 4. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn away from the broad road that leads to destruction. Turn away from our old life of sin and turn to Jesus in faith. Because Jesus offers us the prospect of forgiveness because of his death. Yes, Jesus' death was a terrible crime perpetrated by evil men, but it was also the plan and purpose of God. And Jesus said in chapter 20, the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus lived the perfect life we failed to live. He died the death we deserve. And if we heed his call to follow him, he will forgive us and bring us into his family. So friends, we can follow Jesus or we can make the alternative choice, the same choice these religious leaders did. We can oppose Jesus because he demands our allegiance. We can hate him because he tells us the truth that our sin deserves judgment and that he calls us to repent. And friend, if that's where you are, I want you to know where your opposition leads. To destruction, just where the religious elites wound up. And Jesus said earlier in this book, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Friend, what sin is worth eternal destruction? Nothing is worth that cost, friends. Make no mistake, if we reject Jesus, he will fall on us and crush us. So we must submit to him. We must not oppose him. But we come now to our second point, which is that we need to heed the Lord's call to repentantly receive his grace. So the religious leaders want to oppose Jesus and arrest him, but he's not done with them yet, and now he tells them another parable, which has some similarities to the one we just looked at. Chapter 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Again, we've got a powerful figure with the son. The powerful figure is a king who represents God, and the son represents Jesus. But how do we understand this idea of a wedding feast for Jesus? Who is Jesus going to marry? Well, this is an idea that's clarified as the New Testament was revealed. The Apostle Paul would later write in Ephesians 5, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, this mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Bride of Christ is not an individual person. It is a collective entity. It is the universal church. And this is important, because I've heard people say, well, it's like each of us is individually betrothed to Jesus, and invariably those people's theology gets really weird. No, the idea is that the church collectively is destined to a union with her Savior in the new creation. We will dwell alongside one another in unending love and bliss. Christ with his people. A relationship better and deeper than any romance. And when this comes about, when the church is finally joined to Christ, when our faith becomes sight, the New Testament tells us this will be a moment of great joy. 
Revelation 19 calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. It would be like a really great wedding feast, a celebration of unparalleled joy, a foretaste of all the glories that are to come, and at the same time a celebration of triumph over the defeat of death and sin. Earlier we read from Isaiah 25. Listen to this again. (coughs) On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, of well-aged wine. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. It will be said on that day. This is what God's people will say on that day. Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. There he is. It's going to be a great day. And that's what Jesus has in mind here. Celebration he talked about back in chapter 8. A feast alongside Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. A feast with the saved from all ages, old and new, alongside Jesus. What a day that will be. That's what awaits God's people. And now Jesus is going to talk about this banquet, and particularly he's going to talk about who's going to be there and who's not going to be there. All right, so what happens in the parable? Verse 3. And the king sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. We see here two important things. First, the king has servants who are sent out, who speak on behalf of the king. Talk about them more in a minute. And second, there are folks invited to this feast. It seems probable from what we know about the ancient world that when people were invited to a big event like this, they were given at least two notices. Because back then you didn't have a phone that could keep track of your appointments. So usually you needed somebody to come say, hey, a big party's going to happen. Your attendance is required. And then you'd know, I better get ready. And eventually another messenger would come and say, hey, it's time to go, and you'd go with them. Now, that's what's happening here. These messengers are sent out to bring the guests who are already on notice that they should attend. But what happens? Verse 3, but they would not come. Now, that's a startling thing. These guys almost certainly knew this feast was supposed to happen. They knew they were going to be summoned to it. Now they are. And you know, this isn't like a normal social invitation. This is their king who's summoning them. And it's not like to the company Christmas party. This is the marriage of his son, his heir. This is a state function. There's every expectation the guests should drop everything and go. But they don't. This is a terrible disrespect of the king and his son. And it's not just shown by one guest or another. It's shown by the whole guest list. The realm has contempt for the sovereign. But notice the king is patient and gracious. Look at verse 4. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. (coughs) Here come more servants who renew the call to attend. And this time they bear this very kind message touting the high quality of the banquet. You know, the king could have just said, hey, I ordered you to come. But instead he says, look at what's on the menu. The choicest delicacies, it's all ready. Come along. What an advertisement. Especially when you think about the word dinner here in the ESV. In Greek, it's the word for breakfast. In the, old, in the ancient world, like weddings weren't just like a one-and-done meal situation. It was like 
You got meal after meal after meal, especially at a royal wedding. I mean, this is several courses of several meals of high-quality gourmet dining. And the king says, hey, breakfast is up. Let's eat. What an invitation. Here come the guests, right? Nope, look at verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. They continue to disrespect the king and ignore his summons. Some just go on with their normal lives like nothing's happening. Some kill the king's servants who are summoning them to this fabulous meal. It is incomprehensible wickedness. But as we read this, we suddenly see what's going on because this sounds a lot like the last parable, right? The king sent servants who get murdered. And again, we said there that the servants were referenced to God's prophets sent to Israel. Here we can make the same association. The king's servants are the prophets. And what's really interesting here, I think, is the way Jesus portrays them. You know, when we read the prophets today, we could say, man, these books are so long. They're so boring. There's all this judgment. What is this about? Here's what it's about. Jesus says, the prophets were summoning God's people to the banquet. The feast at the end is real. There will be limitless joy at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the prophets were there saying, hey, dinner's ready. Come to God. Repent. That's what those books are. They're the loving pursuit of a kind God trying to get his wayward people to turn back to the joys that they've been invited to share in. But the people were so mired in sin that they killed the prophets. They killed John the Baptist. What was his message? It's the same thing. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The dinner's ready. Let's go. And you know, many people did accept what John had to say. But in the end, he had the same fate as the other prophets. He was rejected and killed. Why? Because people don't want to hear God's word. No matter how kind and gracious the invitation may be. It was true back then, and it's still true today. Friend, if you want to know why we do what we do up front every week, why we go through the scriptures, it is because this invitation must be renewed again and again. Friend, that's what we're doing up here when we go through the scriptures and we talk about the gospel. We are renewing to you this invitation. Come to the banquet. Repent. That is the, the means by which we do so. Repent and believe. And friends, when we hear the king summon us, we need to listen. We are not to ignore his demands on our lives. We are not like these folks to say, well, I've got better things to do and just go about our normal business. We're not to resist and oppose it like some of them did. We need to attend to the things of God first. But historically, God's prophets were killed and mistreated. Even to the point where we've seen in the previous parable, Jesus, God's own son, is going to be killed. So with his banquet having been so contemptuously and violently rejected by his guest list, what will the king do? Well, two things. First, he's going to mete out justice on the murderers. Look at verse 7. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. It's a prophecy. And in fact, twice in the next century, basically, this would happen. Jerusalem would be overrun by the Romans in 70 and in 135. And in 70, the temple was burned. And in 135, the whole Judean countryside was laid waste. And both times, the religious leaders of Israel were massacred 
It's a horrific outburst of God's wrath. Nothing so close to hell on earth has ever been seen as the Roman wars in Jerusalem in the first and second centuries. But make no mistake, friends, this is not an accident. This is God's fury at the rejection and murder of his son. But the king does a second thing. He doesn't just bear his wrath. See, his gracious banquet of joy is not canceled just because the original guests rejected it. It goes forward. But there's a problem, which is the banquet hall sits empty. Well, so what's to be done? Look at verse 8. Then the king said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. The king says, get some more guests. Bring them in off the streets. And here's a twist, right? The Messianic banquet winds up with a surprising guest list. But this shouldn't be a surprise to us. Because we saw in the previous parable, the tenants were going to be dispossessed of the vineyard and it was going to go elsewhere. It's an idea Jesus originally foreshadowed back in chapter 8. When he said, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, God made a legitimate offer of his kingdom to Israel. He knew they'd reject it, but he offered it all the same. Yet because his Christ was rejected, the kingdom now manifests itself in the church. Now, we've got to be careful when we say that. Because we do not want to read into this parable the false idea that God has discarded the Jewish people forever. That is not the case. For starters, many, many Jewish people have been saved through the ages, beginning with the apostles, right? And the entire early church. And there are many Jewish believers today. What Jesus is saying here is not some blanket ethnic condemnation upon Jewish people. Far from it. Romans 11 says a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. That is, in the future, a massive number of Jews will recognize that Jesus is the Christ and will worship him. God has not cast off the Jewish people. But what was formerly running exclusively through Israel, contact with God and salvation, is now running through the church to believing Jews and Gentiles alike. Israel's monopoly on truth and access ended. And so at the banquet, many are brought in who the Jewish religious leaders would have found distasteful. This is what Jesus means when he talks about good and bad coming in. It's not only people who have lived entirely squeaky, clean, respectable, observant Jewish lives who will be there. Gentiles, who the religious elites considered to be dirty sinners, will be there. People who they considered to be just as bad as Gentiles. Prostitutes and tax collectors who had repented when they heard John the Baptist, they will be there. Sinners like me and you will be there if we know Christ. Friends, God's grace is even greater than we might imagine, and we see that when we see how he fills his banquet hall. So, now what should we take from this second point? Friends, God is very gracious. You know, often when we talk about the grace of God, we do so mainly by thinking about the wretchedness of our sin. 
And that is an appropriate contrast. But here, let's just think about the goodness and the glory that's on offer in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus says it's like the best five-star meal you could possibly have. It's going to be good like that and even better, and it's going to go on forever. And it's not just going to be sensory delight, although Revelation 22 speaks in terms of sensory delight. But friends, we will have joy and peace forevermore. Gather together with the saints throughout all the ages, with our departed ones who knew the Lord, with our yet-to-be-born descendants who will come to Christ. God will dwell with us, Revelation 21 says. He will be our God and we will be His people and He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be wholeness and completion and peace. And it's not like there's just this one blissful moment and then it all ends. No, it goes on forever. And it gets better and better. Ephesians 2 says, across the coming ages, he will show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you see that God is making such a gracious and glorious offer? It's an offer he made to Israel in good faith in the Old Testament. And today it is an offer he makes in good faith to the whole world. The Apostle Paul says in Acts 17, Now God commands all people everywhere to repent. It is on offer. And friends, as Hebrews 2 asks, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And the answer is we won't. Don't be like Old Testament Israel who ignored God's summons, who disrespected God and Christ. Friend, respond with repentant faith in Jesus. Receive the grace that God is offering. But we come now to our last point, which is that we must not think too highly of ourselves. It would be really easy to hear these parables and say, well, I'm glad I'm not like Old Testament Israel. Bad news for them, good news for me, I'm off to lunch. And we could leave here feeling very smug. But friends, we've seen in recent weeks, Jesus calls us not to pride, but to humility. And Jesus now checks our arrogance by humbling us twice in the last four verses. First, he humbles us with another twist ending. Look at verse 11. The banquet hall is full. The party begins. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? In this big crowd, one person stands out because he's wrongly dressed. Everybody else is in wedding attire, and this guy isn't. Now, how did everybody else get the same wedding attire? We're not told. I think the simplest explanation would be the guests were given the appropriate garments by the servants who ushered them into the feast. But there's one guy who doesn't have the right attire. And noticing this, the king approaches him and asks him about it in a very kind way. But notice what the question is. How did you get in here without a garment? Now that tells us this garment is basically the ticket to the event. So that, so that if you don't have a garment, you shouldn't be there. And the king says, well, you're here, but you don't have the garment. How did it happen? Now the king gives him a chance to explain, but he is unable to. Verse 12, and he was speechless. We're going to see in just a few verses. Being speechless in this chapter is what happens to the guilty who are exposed. See, this guy is an interloper. He's not supposed to be there, and he's been caught. And even though the king has been so gracious to bring all kinds of people into this feast, at the end of the day, the king gets to set the criteria. 
for who gets to be at the banquet and who doesn't. And this interloper, who apparently has not come in the same way everybody else has come, is not welcome because he doesn't really belong. Verse 13. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now the parable gives way to the reality it portrays. As Jesus uses language we saw back in chapter 8, that speaks of the horrors of hell. And this king summons his attendants, who apparently stand for the angels, because in chapter 13 we read that the angels are casting people into this kind of torment in hell. Now what's going on here? This points to the final judgment. Friends, Jesus warned in chapter 7 that in the end, there will be people who thought their whole lives that they were saved and find out just at that last moment they really weren't. Jesus talks about it like this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And those people wind up in hell. See, friends, this parable doesn't only call on us to ponder the tragic fate of Israel who rejected God's call. It calls on us to examine ourselves. On what basis are we sure that we belong to the people of God? Now, often when this passage is preached, people focus on the garment. And they say, well, what does the garment represent? And many plausible suggestions have been put forward. Uh, the imputed righteousness of Christ, or humility, or one of the other traits that Jesus has associated with salvation in this book. But the bottom line here is Jesus does not identify what the garment represents. So I think that tells us this warning isn't ultimately about the exact meaning of the garment. Rather, the warning is this. The king has the right to set the rules for who enters his feast. And either we come the king's way, or we won't be admitted. And what is the king's way? Well, throughout the three parables we've seen in this section, again and again, the focus is on repentant faith. It's what the prophets preached. It's what John preached. It's what Jesus preached. It's what distinguished the son who did not do the will of God from the son who did the will of God in the first parable. It's what distinguished the repentant tax collectors and prostitutes from the unrepentant and lost religious leaders of Israel. Friends, I want you to know today you do not belong to God's people and you do not have a ticket to God's eternal feast because you're a member of this church or you attend church regularly on a Sunday or because you do some nice deeds sometimes or because you have a generally sunny disposition and a winning personality or because of your political beliefs or your patriotism. Friend, the only question that matters is have you turned from your sin to Jesus? If so, you will be saved. You stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But if not, you are in danger of eternal destruction. No matter how much you may be convinced that you belong in heaven for whatever mistaken reason. See, Jesus tells this conclusion to this story to ask ourselves, have we really responded to the call? Have we really come to God the way he requires? Or are we deceiving ourselves? Friends, don't draw the wrong conclusion from this parable. It isn't only about those being outside who are excluded. It tells us there are people on the inside who will be excluded too. 
Don't let that be you. But Jesus isn't done yet. He's got one last twist that humbles us. Look at verse 14. You'll notice this begins with the word for. In the New Testament, when you find the word for, it always explains what came beforehand. So this now is Jesus' official interpretation of the parable of the wedding feast. For many are called, but few are chosen. It's an interesting saying. We might expect that Jesus would say many are called, but few answer. That's not the interpretation. No, many are called, but few are chosen, Jesus says. Yes, many invitations go out. They went out to Old Testament Israel. They go out throughout our world today. Many have been summoned, but who answers the invite? Jesus says, only those who are the chosen. Chosen by whom? Well, when the verb is, that's related to this noun is used in the New Testament to speak of salvation, the subject is always God. They've been chosen by God. Now, this points to the doctrine of election. And I know it's a controversial doctrine in our day. But friends, it's not controversial because the Bible's unclear about it. It's controversial because people don't like it. But Jesus said this very clearly earlier in the book, Matthew eleven twenty six. He prays to the Father, You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. See, in the end, whether we come to a saving knowledge of the Son is ultimately up to the Son. It's not ultimately up to us. Now, our minds may rebel against this. We may say, this is not fair. But friends, I remind you, God has made a good faith offer to the whole world of his gospel. Just as he made a good faith offer of his kingdom to Israel. But he makes these good faith offers despite knowing that people will reject them because of their sheer sinfulness. But God is fair, and so he does make this good faith offer. But friends, if we think that we in ourselves will respond favorably to this, we're kidding ourselves. Look at the senseless ways that God's prophets were treated in these parables. Look at the brutal way Jesus was treated in his final week in Jerusalem. Do not deceive yourself about how sinful you and I and every other person is. Listen to Paul in Romans 3. None is righteous. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. You see, friends, apart from God's intervention, the banquet hall would always stand empty. And so God elects. God draws people to himself. He saves us and empowers us to believe. And that's great news. Now, maybe today you say, well, this doesn't feel like good news. And a lot of the time people feel like that because when they hear this word election, they're not really sure what it means. They're worried God's going to hide the ball. And they're going to go their whole life trusting in Jesus and find out on the last day that God's going to turn them away by saying, well, you weren't elect and you had no way of knowing. But friends, if that's what you fear, you don't understand this doctrine. Election is not about God hiding the ball in salvation. No, election explains why some of us wretched sinners believe while others do not. And friend, if you love Jesus, every bit of positive volition that you have inside you for Jesus shows God's electing and saving work is happening in your life. 
Your love and faith and repentance shows that you do belong to Jesus and is evidence of your election. So friends, we don't want to be fearful of this doctrine. We want to be thankful for this doctrine because without it, nobody would be saved. We all would be lost. But friends, in the end, Jesus says the banquet will be filled with those who heed God's call because ultimately they were chosen by God. And friends, when we realize that, then we dare not think too highly of ourselves. We have not been saved because of our own good decision-making or our own spiritual insight or our own wisdom. No, friends. If we know Christ in the end, it is because of God's grace. The grace that calls upon the world to believe and live. The grace that rescues and enlivens the spiritually dead. The grace that sent the Son of God to a cross for you and me. The grace that offers that glorious banquet forever. Friends, God is so good. Let us not respond to his kindness with evil, unbelieving hearts. Let us turn to him in faith and thank and worship him today.